Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, and I don't do this as an obligatory thing, but a really heartfelt thing. Thank you for being here. You know, thank you once again for always being consistent, sitting under the administration of the Word of God, whether through this man or any of the other teachers in the church. Thank you for honoring God, for trusting Him, and for obeying Him in being here with us this morning as the Word of God has ministered. This morning we're continuing and we're in lesson number four, at least that's what I have in my notes here. I think I have numbered them correctly. And this morning what we're going to begin to do, we have been building up for the last three lessons, you remember, to come to the place of looking at this great work of God in the Old Testament called the sacrificial system, which involved the tabernacle, the seven festivals, and the priesthood. <clears throat> That's the sacrificial system. That's the application of the law and the work of God to make it available to us, make His sovereign goodness and His mercy available to us when we transgress His law. So that's what all this is about. So this morning, having already gone through the general layout of the tabernacle, looking at the furniture in the tabernacle, its arrangement, some of the dimension issues, talking a little bit about what each piece of furniture was about. This morning we're going to begin to look at the picture of Christ in the tabernacle. And as we do this, may I say this, that there is so much more that can be said, but not because of brevity, I'm not going to do it. Because we can take the time we want. But sometimes when we give so much information, it begins to be an issue in our minds that we forget. And so what I have felt to do was to glean from the tabernacle and the priesthood, which we'll be speaking about in the next few weeks, and the festivals after that. Try to glean from the Lord, what do you want this class to know about the tabernacle in relation to its revelation of Christ. And that's what I hope I have, I'm doing, and as you listen to this, hopefully it will be ministering to you. So uh, there will be other things, and you'll read other places, this means that, whatever. well, Peter didn't say that, you know. So let's be content, hopefully, with what I felt the Lord has given me, and if I feel to go back and amend something and add to something, of course, I'll be feel free to do that. This morning, now that we've overviewed the tabernacle, we're ready to consider some of the ways the tabernacle pointed to or pictured Christ as the fulfillment. Now, before I get into that, because it's easy to get into, okay, now let's look at this. This means that. This means that. It's always extremely important that we undergird our teaching with the authority of the Word of God. So this morning, I'm not going to jump in immediately, although we will begin to cover this. But we'll, I want to first show you at least a little bit why we believe and what is our authority for believing that the tabernacle, among many other things in the Old Testament, is a picture or a foreshadowing or a type of Christ who is to come. And if you remember this, and I'm going to quote it a couple of times probably during the next several weeks, 
Colossians 2.17 is an extremely significant verse in relation to all of this. <clears throat> and so there are certain verses that all of us as believers should know. Colossians 2.17 is one of that. And it says this, that Christ is the substance, or Christ is the fulfillment, or Christ is that to whom God has been pointing and anticipating all of this Old Testament work of his is carried over and completely put into him and completed in him, where he is the walking revelation and fulfillment of everything that God has been doing redemptively in the Old Testament. So Colossians 2.17 is one of those primary verses that it would be good for us to know about. Our authority for recognizing or seeing anything at all in the Old Testament, and especially in this area, is God's command to Moses. You remember this in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. Remember, Moses has come up to God's presence. It's one of the five times that he comes up to God's presence during the wilderness journeys. He said, let them make me, who them? The people. Now, do you see that? Let them make me. It is God's work joining with us or joining us into his work so that the power and presence and the will of God is being manifested and is being accomplished through his cooperative people. So you always will see that in the Bible. It is not just God, let God, let God, God alone, let it go to God, none of that. It is all of God with all of me. It is not all of God and a little bit of me. It is all of God and all of me working together. So let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may tabernacle or dwell in their midst. Exactly. You see it? Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern, the model, the likeness of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Why is God so specific? Because this tabernacle and all of its furniture and all of its function this tabernacle speaks of his son, and that's why God is so critically uh, um, insisting on the exactness of every little detail in the tabernacle that it should be according to the pattern that he gives to Moses. But does this give us the authority to teach that Jesus is pictured in the tabernacle? Just because this is a pattern, where is our authority to teach that Jesus is the one who is pictured, or anyone who is pictured in this tabernacle? Our answer is found in the words of Jesus himself. You remember, after the crucifixion, it's three days later, and there are a couple of disciples walking, going back home. They're bent down, they're dejected, they're sad, hope is crushed. All of the excitement and the enthusiasm and the hope of life and with God and all that could be has died on a cross. All they know is that this man in whom was contained everything that they ever could or would ever hope for or receive from God, all they knew is what? We saw him die. We saw him taken down from the cross. We saw him carried to the tomb. We saw him buried. 
we saw a great stone rolled in the front of the tomb. All we know, it's over. Now, if you've ever felt sad or upset about something that didn't come true, it will never be like what those people felt. And they're going home. And remember what happened. As they went, another man came up. Hey, could I join you? Yes, join us. And as they're walking along, they said, Taylor, what's so, wh wh why are you looking so sad? What's happening? And Taylor says, well, you know, the things that have been going on these last days. And what does Jesus say? What things? You notice, how many of you know that Jesus knows what things? And, you know, there are critics of the Bible that will say, you see, that shows Jesus is not omnipotent because he didn't know he had to ask a question. <laughs> how many of you mamas and daddies know what your child did, but you said, what did you just do, sweetheart? <laughs> Mama knew. Mamas always know. And he says, what things? Are you the only man who's been around here? You're the only man. Oh, in other words, you dumb. And we had hoped. And then Jesus says, oh, foolish and slow of heart and learning. He says this, and beginning with Moses, where is Moses? Anytime beginning with Moses, that's the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah. This is the heart of the law, the Torah, the law. And beginning with the law and all the prophets, can you imagine what kind of Sunday school class that was? This was a Sunday, remember. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things that concerned himself. And remember when he went from among them, having done the breaking of the bread and the last, I mean, and the communion meal, remember that? And he disappeared and he said, they said what? Were not our hearts, what? Burning within us. That's the flame of God's presence and his purity and his passion. As they heard what? As they heard the word of God as they heard the Word of God. As we read, hopefully we are feeling the flame of God in our hearts as we read His Word. Also, remember the words of the Apostle Paul. There are two or three times, but I've taken this one, Romans 15, 8, but it's in Corinthians and a couple of other places. For whatever was written in former days, what does that mean? The Old Testament, the Scriptures, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So as we look at the various details of the tabernacle, th th that's our authority, just those two verses alone. As we look at the various details of the tabernacle, we're going to see God's message. We're going to see the gospel being revealed in the tabernacle. And it reveals, and this is what the tabernacle will reveal, among other things. It's going to reveal how God can dwell with his people, how his people can approach him in worshipful fellowship. It's going to answer the question, in view of the people's sin, in view of man's sin and fallenness, in view of man's rebellion, repudiation, how can this God 
remain a God of absolute, pure, eternal justice and at the same time remain a God of absolute, pure, and eternal mercy. How can that happen? The tabernacle, you see, will be the Old Testament speaking about that in types and shadows and forms, then in the temple of Solomon, you remember the same thing. And then that answer will come to us in the incarnation. Remember what the incarnation means? It means when Jesus became a living human being. Or when Christ became a being, human being, taking on, you know, the humanity of Christ, uh, Jesus. So as we look at the various details, let's remember the tabernacle is going to tell us how can this holy, pure God dwell with an unholy, impure people. The tabernacle, therefore, is the shadow that awaits the reality in Christ. Remember, Colossians 2.17 the tabernacle and all of its features is the shadow that awaits the reality of Christ. This means that everything about the tabernacle, everything about the tabernacle, spoke about and pictured the one who would be God's living tabernacle. Did I give you a reference for the word living tabernacle in your uh, notes? Do you have a reference in there for the living tabernacle? What is it? John what? 114. Remember, this is one of those big, big, major verses in the Bible that we're so easily overlooked because we're so familiar with it. And what does it say? And the Word became incarnate, enfleshed. And what? And the Word became flesh. And He what? Dwelt. I will be dwelling among them. And He dwelt what? Among us. And we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten Son, full of what? Grace and truth. Remember, John in that one verse takes up, gathers together, and pours everything of the Old Testament that had anything to do with Jesus, with Christ and his work and his person and pours it all into that verse. That verse summarizes and comprehensively completes everything of the Old Testament. That is an enormous verse. That's what the tabernacle is picturing. It is waiting for John 1.14 to become a reality. So let's look at the various components of the tabernacle. We'll begin today I'm going to take my time going through this. If we don't finish everything today that are in the notes, we'll continue next week and we'll move along through this. So how is Christ pictured in the tabernacle? First, in the metals. Remember in Genesis, Exodus 25, 3. Remember in Exodus 25 is the general, those verses 1 through 9 is the general word of God and the ordering of God. Say, look, Moses, I want you to do this. I want to you to gather all this material, and here's the listing of it. So when Genesis, I keep saying Genesis, so if I say Genesis, I really mean Exodus today. Exodus 25, 3, we hear this. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Obviously, this is coming from the people. Again, everything of the tabernacle is in response to the people's obedient faith to be giving. Another time for you, if you're not a believer, who is giving biblically, and we believe that means a tithe. 
you're not participating in the work of God the way he wants you to. Don't withhold from him. Trust him. Let it go and find out what the Lord would do. It's a trust and an honor. And he says to them, gold, silver, and bronze. Now, why those three metals? Gold. What does gold speak about? Gold speaks about deity, of kingly character, of the glory of God. That is what's contained in gold. For instance, in Revelation 1, 12, which is one of the verses among many that we could use. <clears throat> then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flaming fire. Remember in Revelation 21, 21. And the 12 gates were 12 gates of pearls. Each of the gates were made of a signet pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So what does gold speak of? Gold speaks of God, of divinity, of God's character, of God's person, of his rule and his reign, of his kingly majesty. This is what gold speaks of. That doesn't mean that every time you see the word gold in the Old Testament, it means that. But when it's used in these kinds of contexts, God is saying something about this tabernacle. This tabernacle <clears throat> represents his kingly place, his place of authority and dwelling upon the earth. It's just not another place. It is the very presence on earth of his throne, the reality of which is in the heavens. This is his earthly place of rule. Silver. When we see silver, again, in most contexts, it speaks of redeeming with a price. It is purchasing something back with the silver, with the money. It speaks of ransom money to buy a slave from captivity. Zechariah eleven twelve, And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. You see, it's speaking about, it's a prophecy of what? Jesus or the Messiah will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. So silver, again, has to do with redemption, with purchasing back. You part, bought slaves with silver. Now, it doesn't mean you didn't use gold, but silver was a common um, um, commodity of purchase in those days. So a slave is brought back out of slavery because of this silver. So Jesus, you see, is pictured here as the one who is God's silver for us. He is God's, if you would, purchase price. He pays the price in himself in his own death. Matthew 26, 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Remember who said that? Remember who said that? Who? Judas says it to the priest. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So you see, that is prophesied 400 plus years before by Zechariah eleven twelve. It's already a prophecy. The prophet said the Messiah is going to be purchased for 11, I'm sorry, 30 pieces of silver. Bronze. What is bronze? Or brass, but bronze mostly. It speaks of God's judgment of sin. And I didn't put this verse down, but remember in prayers of the people, and the heavens were as what? Brass. 
In other words, the prayers were going against the heavens and it's a picture of our prayer hitting heaven and bouncing right back. And God is not answering, or at least he doesn't seem to be answering. Why? Because of sin, because of the iniquity of the people. God is refusing to answer to meet their needs. It speaks of God's judgment, Numbers 21.9. So Moses made a bronze serpent to set it on a pole. Remember the rebellion there. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So it's a picture of dealing with sin. It's a judgment of God upon sin. Revelation 1.15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So again, here we have a picture of Christ. He is the king, gold. He is the one who will be the one who will ransom his people. And he is the one who will be dealt with. Uh, sorry, he is the one whom God will deal in judgment because of our sin. So you see already in these medals, not just three nice medals here, but each one speaking significantly about our need, about God's way of solving that need through our substitute, about the remedy for our need, gold, silver, and bronze. That's why we have those three medals in the building there, in the uh, tabernacle there. What about the colors? Remember the colors that were mentioned 25-4 of Exodus? Blue, purple, and scarlet. Why is God so interested in all of these things? Again, each one of these things has to do with something of the person and the work of Christ. Each one of these things has to do with something of the person and work of Christ. So why blue, purple, and scarlet? Well, what does blue speak of? Blue speaks of the color of the heavens. It's where God abides. I mean, I think if you looked outside today, is it clear enough? When we see outside during the day, what color is the sky most of the time anyway? Blue. So it talks about, and it is a reference to God's abode. He dwells in the heavens. Simply a picture, God is saying that this tabernacle is a picture of my heavenly dwelling. What does that have to do with Christ? He is a man from heaven. He has come down to earth. Remember, I have come down here to serve you. So blue has to do with the heavens. Purple. Purple is one of those most precious colors that spoke of royalty. Remember, it takes that little worm and they had to crush it in a dye and all that kind of stuff. And so it was a very, very expensive color and dye in the fabric. And it was so expensive that only those who had the most money wore it and mostly, you know, the royalty. So when you see pictures of the old kings and the whatever, you see them decked out in purple. It's a picture of the royalty of the, not only just royalty, but of the expense of being royalty, of the costliness, of the uh, specialness of who that person is or what royalty is. John 19, 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Why are they doing this? Well, in their minds, what are they doing? What are they doing, Jack? They're mocking him. They're making, oh, you're a king? Wow, look, we have a king. Hey, king, put on a robe. But what were they doing? In mocking them, what were they doing? 
They were proclaiming him through their sin. They were proclaiming the purpose of God and the revelation of God in Christ. Isn't it right? Isn't it interesting that God will take even the mocking rebellion of sinful people, even those who call themselves atheists. There are no such things as atheists. Don't ever say this person's an atheist. Say he says he's an atheist. Amen? Don't ever concede that a person is an atheist. Never, never do it. Why? Because Romans 1, 19 and 20 tells us differently. And I'm going on the side of God rather than on the side of some fool. Why do I say fool? Because a fool has said in their heart, there is no God. Now, you see, I'm, you, don't, you think I'm just trying to be nasty. No, I'm just quoting the Word of God. So that, that's just a thing with me. You know, there are, and I'll go do this too. I'll just, while I'm on a tear. There are people who are getting their natural beings changed from male to female, female to male. That's happening today. They can call this person he, she, or whatever. They want to call him or her all day long. I'm always going to refer to that person in that person's original gender. So if it's a man who says he's now a woman, I ain't never going to say she. You know why, Nettie? Because whom God has created, he called him a he or he called him a she. Therefore, I'm not going to change my mind for any politics. Don't you do that. Don't lie about what God has done. And then someone's going to say, well, why are you insisting, Sandy, that it's a she? Then you have an open door to share the word of God. Let's not be believers who succumb to and go with every wind of doctrine out there, but let's be men and women of God who stand against that stuff, stand in the power and in the purity of the word of God. Amen? And you're going to get, ooh, whoa, you bigot. Yes. Narrow-minded. Yes. 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 Racist. Yes. I'm of the new race of Christ. Segregationist. Jesus said, come out from among them. Narrow-minded. Narrow is the way. I'm all those things. Aren't you, Thaddeus? In Christ, that's who you are, brother. And so all you have to do is start sharing some of this stuff with folks, <laughs> and you're going to have all kinds of opportunities to share the word, all kinds of opportunities. You just sit with a bunch of people and say, look, I'm a racist. The conversation is on. <laughs> I love it. I do that occasionally. And, you know, it's just interesting. Just, you, can, you can precipitate conversation without saying, are you saved, brother? I mean, if that Lord says that to do that, do it. But, but I'm narrow-minded. I'm a segregationist. <gasps> and all of a sudden, everybody is in the conversation. They're all ears, James. They're all ears, brother. They all want to hear. Why are you so crazy? That's right. That's exactly right. And share with delight and winsomeness and kindness and gentleness but share with the power of God's truth. What were we talking about? <laughs> Purple. <laughs> oh, yeah, royalty. They clothed Jesus in royalty. They were saying, unbeknownst to them, this is God's royal son. And Bastion, they didn't even know that, did they? And they were being used prophetically. With scarlet. What is scarlet all about? It's the color of the blood of sacrifice. 
Remember Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you <clears throat> on the, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, to be purchasing back. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. Do you remember when Israel went into the promised land under Joshua? You remember that? And they encamped outside that great city called Jericho. And Joshua sent spies into the city. You remember how many spies? Somebody remember how many spies? A couple of spies. And they were in there and they met this woman. Now look, wait, wait. This is a whore. This is a filthy, nasty woman who gives herself to men for money. This is someone that we don't want to sit with at the table. This is a low woman. She ain't no good, Belt. She's no good. You see what I mean? You know who she is now, don't you? You got it? And the Lord sends them to whose house? Her house. Can't he decide to do something nicer than that? Why send her, him, them to the worst person? Because Jesus was sent to the worst people to save us. We were all that way in the spirit. And what has happened? You hang out a little what? Red, scarlet thread out of your window. And when we destroy this city, we're going to save everybody in your household. A picture of the blood atonement, the covering of the house. Now, what's so astounding about this woman, Rahab? She marries a man whose son, whose son, whose son is King David. And finally, when you go all the way through it, Rahab, this whore, is in the lineage of God's own son. Is not that a picture of who we are in Christ? Amen. Is God amazing? When you look at Matthew 17, the first 17, uh, Matthew 1, first 17 verses, there are four women in there who, under normal circumstances, are trashy women. They should never have been in there. Remember them? Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba. While I'm on a tear, Bathsheba. No, no, look, 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 let's get the word. Let's see God for who he is. Bathsheba. Here's a woman who's living next door to the king. She has a two-story balcony. The king has a four-story apartment. She knows he's home. She knows that. The king is home. Everybody else is fighting. This is when he should have been out there. She knows he's home. So she goes out into her balcony. I'm, I'm going to take a bath. <laughs> Ain't nobody here. I'll take a bath. So she gets out there and takes her little bath. Now, she knows the king's looking. She may have splashed around a little bit too loudly. <laughs> Excuse me. hope nobody saw me. She knows the king is there. And the king <gasps> sees her. Hey. Goes down, hey, babes, and boom. They lie together and she's pregnant. Now, that's bad enough. I'm pregnant. Uh-oh. Get her husband. Who's that? Sergeant Uriah, remember? Bring him in here. Sergeant 
you need a little R&R. Why don't you go home and be with your wife? You see what I mean? But Uriah, come on in, guys. Y'all come on in. Uriah is an honorable man. He says, I'm not going into my wife while all my compadres are out there fighting. So he stays in front. And King said, man, it didn't work. Kill the guy. Put him on the front line. So he got killed. So the baby is born. Murder, adultery. The baby dies. Remember that in 2 Samuel 12? I think it is 12. Could be wrong about that. But look what happens. Go back and look at the lineage of Christ in Matthew, and it's through Solomon, one of the sons of Bathsheba. And then go over to Luke and look at the lineage of Christ, and it's also through Nathan, another son of Bathsheba. Look at this, God. Can you imagine such a God? You see, nobody has a religion like this. We'd have kicked these suckers out. We'd have written your name out of that list. You would never have been in that list, sister, because you're embarrassing. That's God, though. You know why? Because God is not only not embarrassed over the evil of his people whom he redeems by the blood of the Lamb, but he is crowing about the glory of his son's ability to save, wash, purify, redeem, and bring into glory these people who were no good. Can you say amen to God? That's right. Our God is an amazing God. See, that's why this gospel is the truth. Ain't nobody out there would have come up with this kind of a religion. Nobody would have come up with this kind of a thing. Where are we in our notes? Oh, Hebrews 13, 12. We're talking about scarlet, one of the colors. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Remember, scarlet represents the shedding of the blood, the sacrificial giving of his life. 1 John 1:17, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from almost all sin. Only sin that you repent of. Only sin that the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from. How much, Joyce? All of God's sin, comprehensively every sin that I ever have committed from conception to death, all of it is comprehensively laid on him, and all of it is paid for fully, finally, and forever in Christ. Amen? Amen. Yes. So today, why can I repent? Because I am forgiven. I never repent to be forgiven. I am forgiven. Therefore, I can go to God and repent of my sin and confess. Amen? Because he has forgiven me in Christ. And I can walk in that forgiveness as I submit to God for a cleansing of the impurities that are in me and the defilement that still remains in his body and the building up of his power in me to overcome this mess and to rid myself of it. The wood. Now, we not only had metals, we not only had colors, but we had wood. Exodus 25, 5. It's acacia wood. If you have King James, it's shittim, S-H-I-T-T-I-M. It's acacia wood. As such, this wood, which was an enduring wood, it was a wood of the desert, it was a very dense wood, it was impervious pretty much to insect uh, infestation, rot, and that kind of stuff. So it's a very strong, enduring wood. As such, it speaks, we believe, of the strength of the humanity of Jesus. The humanity, this man of great strength, this man of great integrity.
You see, like the acacia wood, the humanity of Christ was assaulted but withstood the assaults. You see, it was assaulted but withstood the assaults. Acacia wood is assaulted, but it withstands the assaults. The cover, the oil, Exodus 25, 6, remember it says oil in there. Again, we're just going through the list of materials in verses 3 to 6, just the list of materials here that construct and have a part in and have to do with the tabernacle. Oil, 25, 6, it says oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Oil for anointing, symbolizing the ministry of the Spirit as the mediator of the light of the Word of God. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit long, uh, more detail later on. The pouring of the oil into the cup signifies the anointing of the believer by the Holy Spirit. So we'll talk about the lampstand in more detail in, in next week's lesson. So, but let me just say that. So the oil has to do with the presence of the Spirit of Christ. And you'll see oil throughout the Old Testament in reference to uh, anointing and in reference to priests. Now what about the coverings? Remember there were four kinds of coverings. Remember we looked at the picture last week. The tabernacle had inner covering, outer, outer, outer covering. Exodus 26, 1 through 14. That's the listing of all the coverings. Each covering speaks something about the person of Christ. Each one of these has to do with Christ. First of all, Exodus 26, 1. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with cherubim skillful, skillfully worked into them. So they took linen and they dyed it these three colors and interwove all these fabrics, you know, this, these, uh, what do you call them, uh, strands? What? Say it again. Threads. I like that word, threads. Thank you, Porter. Diane knows these things. They took all these threads of different colors and they blended them together. And so what you have here is a curtain with these colors in them. And on the curtains you have depictions of cherubim. That's what you have on the curtain. Now there's a reason for this, which we'll go into in a little later on for the cherubim. By the way, did anybody look up cherubim and find anything about cherubim? Uh, you did? What did you find out? Yeah, but I was asking your friend here. You see, you know it all. No, 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 no. No, Anna knows these things. No, no, I'm not being fun of her. She, she, she's taught this stuff before. What? They're guardians of what? They are guardians of the tabernacle. They're guardians, okay, of God's holiness, of the presence of God. The, the cherubim are the creatures. They're never referred to as angels. In fact, they weren't denoted as angels until many, many years after the New Testament was written. Now, whether they're angels or not, I don't know. But the Bible doesn't call them angels, so I'm not calling them an angel. But I will call them creatures because they were. Remember the four-faced creatures? And so they're guardians of the, what? The holiness, the integrity of God. And you remember where we first saw them in, G in Genesis chapter 3. They're interwoven in the curtains. The linen, why linen? The linen is a picture of righteousness. It is a picture of purity. It has to do with the very character of God himself. Righteousness, may I just give you a word that means righteousness? I think that will help us all. Righteousness means that God is right. 
in anything and everything he does, and he is right in anything and everything he does not do. God is completely, absolutely, eternally, always right in everything. No matter what it is, whatever God does, whatever God, quote, fails to do, he's right. He is the only right or righteous being in all creation. And so the linen speaks of that rightness, that righteousness, that uprightness, that justice, that mercy, that purity of who God is in himself as this eternal creator being. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what do we have here? In heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, we are going to be wearing what? Not the fashions of this corrupt world. Not the latest thing that makes me look good. <laughs> makes this hang out and that hang out and exposes that and covers that and should have done that. That's not what we're going to be wearing in heaven. We're going to be wearing that garb which exemplifies the righteousness of the one who has purchased us at the cross. We are going to be wearing robes of righteousness. We are going to put on Christ in a visible and literal way. Right now, we are putting on Christ in the spirit, correct? Put on Christ. Put off the works of the, the uh, evil works of, uh, of sin. But on that day, we will be wearing forever the royal robes of righteousness of our God. The righteousness that speaks. We are a purchased people and God's righteous people forever. How many of you are righteous? I didn't ask this. Well, let me put your hand down. How many of you feel unrighteous a lot? Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. I act that. I remember once last year. No, I act that. See, Bath is already laughing over there about something over here. There's something going on at this table that I'm going to have to find out. See, as a school teacher, I notice all things in the classroom. But how many of us know that in Christ we are righteous? Raise your hand if you're righteous. Don't you feel a little uh, about doing it? How many of you feel a little awkward about raising your hand to be righteous? I mean, I, I know, I know how it is. Why? Because you see, we're too sewn into who we are in the natural. Our first and most joyful response should be yes, because God says, I want you to acknowledge that you're my child. You see, if we're children of a particular man and he's being honored and, and everybody says, well, Thaxton's kids raise their hands. And only two of them raise a hand. What are you all going to think? How many children do you have? Three, good. He was thinking, two, three. But suppose one refused to raise a hand. What would you think? Something's wrong. See, a daddy wants you to raise your hand quickly, right? Amen? Everybody with that? Okay. 
righteousness, the very character of Christ himself. We're not going to get all through this today, but I'm not worried about that. The next one. Number two, Exodus 26, 7, and I'll stop with this one. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Goat's hair. Goat's hair represents the issue of sin, having to do with sin. It was one of the symbols of the New Testament for sin. I'm sorry, in the Old Testament of sin. Now remember, it's first righteousness is the first covering. Over the righteousness comes sin, the covering of sin. Now what are we talking about here? We're talking about first the righteousness of Christ, and then second, sin. God is going to deal with sin through the righteousness of his own son. In Leviticus 16, which we'll get into in a lot more detail when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, the sins of the people were confessed, were transferred onto the goat, which was carried or actually um, um, beaten into, and it ran out into the wilderness to, be, to die. It shows this, that the sin of the people is placed upon this goat, and it's called the scapegoat, and is driven into the wilderness, and it dies out there. So what does that mean? At the cross, when Jesus died for our sin, God having placed our sin on him. When he died, God accepted his death on the behalf of us. He is the ransom. And in doing so, the scapegoat pictures that God now sends our sins away from him. As Jeremiah says, your sins are how much? From what? How, what does it say? Can't hear it. As far as the east is from the west, God has driven our sin away, which means what? we're forgiven people it's a picture of the goat carrying the sin away it has to do with the issue of the judgment of sin this speaks of jesus as our sin bearing substitute second corinthians 5 21 first john 1 7 isaiah 53 7 listen he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and who said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world who said that John the Baptist, and what is the verse? John chapter 1, verse 29. You see, G, the goat represents Jesus being our goat, if you would, our scapegoat on whom God lays our sin, lays upon him our sin, and who is driven into the wilderness, so to speak, who carries our sin away. Well, we'll continue this next week. I'll just pick up from here, and we'll go into the next class. Father, thank you so much. Father, I pray that as we do this, Father, that you are encouraging our hearts. Father, you are doing for us what Jesus did for those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That we can say as we hear your word and we see the relationship of the tabernacle to Christ, Father, we can say, oh, what a God. What a gospel, what a redemption, what a glory. Father, may your name be ever lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen.